you would, you can open your Bibles to, well, Ephesians 1 and then also 1 Corinthians 14. And we'll get to both of those rather quickly. Let's pray. Father in heaven again, it is our desire, Lord, to, to know your word. To understand, Father, your working in us. To understand the truth that you've given to us in Scripture. The Father, we may have understanding of life. Understanding of how things are to be. Understanding, Lord, of your love for us. Of the help and the strength you give us. Of your grace. Father, we ask that you would grant us again understanding. May, Father, this not only be beneficial for us, but, Lord, may we draw closer to you as we come to better understand the relationship that we have with you because of Christ. And so, as always, Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word that we may have it. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have to share in your word together. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, as we were kind of working our way again through 1 Corinthians 14 and making sure we have a good handle on spiritual gifts, in particular tongues, and also how the Spirit of God works in us and all those things that are tied together with that, uh, and a couple of questions that come out of a great misunderstanding of God, of God the Holy Spirit and His relationship to us. There are two questions we were looking at. One is, how can I know for sure if I have the Holy Spirit in me? And uh, if you are like me, I had the great fortune of being raised in really a very solid Christian home uh, and in a church where the Word of God was taught clearly. And so I just kind of had this naive approach to life that every single person who was a believer who went to any church knew everything I knew. So when I heard individuals asking the question as to whether or not if they had the Holy Spirit, I thought, had they lost their minds? Who would even ask that? Of course we have the Holy Spirit. And of course I learned through the years that there's just a great deal of all kinds of teaching out there that doesn't necessarily follow what the scripture says. Uh, and as a result of that, there is at times great confusion. And then of course, another question, a follow-up that's closely related to that because just of misunderstanding the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? So let me read to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 9, which again kind of set the stage for us last week as we ended, giving us really the truth in a very simple form so that we can understand exactly uh, the answer to the first question. And that is, in verse 9, You, however, Paul writes, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so basically there's this emphatic statement that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. If you are a believer, the Spirit of God lives in you. So we don't have to worry about whether or not you can feel such a thing. The Bible never describes if there is a feeling of having the Holy Spirit, much less what that would even feel like. It is not left up to some kind of subjective experience. Again, it's a statement that we are taking by faith. Remember that when we believe what the Bible says, we are trusting what it says. We're trusting that it's true. That's living by faith. 
Living by faith is not where you get some kind of you know, mystical feeling and that you're being led as you live your life in a mist or in a fog and you never know what's going to happen next. It's much more really practical than that. It, it's very much rooted in the way that God has designed us to live and function in this world. And when it comes to our spiritual life, it is not some mystical thing that's out there that we have to try to plug into so we can feel a certain way. There are some of us, again, as we mentioned before, we have, we have different makeups emotionally. And so we're all going to, we all may respond differently to the truth of the Word of God. We may respond differently emotionally. Some of us may have greater feeling about it than others. Whether we have a greater feeling or we lack a feeling, those are of no consequence. It, it, in one sense, it doesn't matter because the one who's maybe feeling it more, that doesn't mean they have a greater love for God or a greater intense love for God than others. It doesn't mean that. It just means that they're, they're different than we are and I'm different than them. Just, that's all that it means. The key is, really, is that we believe what the Scripture says, we obey what the Scripture says, we think in the way that the Scripture desires us to, to think. We, we have the proper paradigm, the proper view of things, and that we approach life this way. And we just we accept what the Bible says. And we want to continue to study the Bible so we have a much clearer picture and understanding of what it says, not just only in a sense of just its literal meaning, but then in the idea of, of it applying to my life and giving me the understanding that I need to understand myself and to understand God and to understand how God works in my life and how God works in the lives of others and how God works in history and how, good work, God, how God works in circumstances and all those types of things. So it really is a very simple statement. And it is one, either we believe what it says or we do not believe what it says. But even if you don't believe what it says, necessarily, if you are a believer, that doesn't mean that you don't have the Spirit because it's, it's still true, whether you believe it or not. If you are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. That is great news. That is so good to know that God is not waiting for us to get to a certain level or to perform certain things so we can then really have it. There is no really having it. I possess it. It belongs to me. Because that's what God has promised, and God keeps his word. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, Paul addresses Christians who have the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know they have the Holy Spirit? Well, first, look in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, Paul speaks emphatically here in the past tense. He says he's writing to these believers, and he says, when you heard the truth, the gospel, when you believed in him, you were sealed. That, that's when it took place. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In the NIV, it reads this way, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So you belong, if you are a believer, you belong to Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. 
You are included, period. Regardless of what else is going on in your life, these truths are true about you and about me, about every believer. Then in chapter 5, so turn over a page or so of Ephesians, beginning in verse 18, Paul says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, and giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to make sure that we keep certain things clear, because many times some individuals will kind of confuse what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to be baptized by the Spirit, and what is the filling of the Spirit. And often they get some of these things confused. When it comes to being filled by the Spirit, that is given as a command. Okay, we are told to be filled with the Spirit. It may be an oversimplification, but the main idea with that is we are to yield ourselves in submission to the Spirit. Now, when it comes to that, that doesn't mean that, again, that you wake up in the morning and you say, God, I have no idea what you want me to do today, but I'm just yielding to you. And then you, you want to be kind of, again, led around by whatever. And no, it's what the Word of God says. That's how the Holy Spirit guides us and directs us. God has spoken. God speaks to us through His, uh, through His Word. The Holy Spirit interacts with the Word in our life and heart to help us to understand what God wants us to do. It's not some big mystery that we run around trying to figure out what is it God wants, and then we just, we just kind of, um, I guess, interpret everything that happens as somehow being of God. It's not like that. It's just, it's again, very well grounded in what the Word of God says. And again, it's not that it necessarily, I don't want to say that it bypasses our feelings. Because again, emotions are very much a part of our makeup. You know, you can't, we can't really dissect ourselves and say, you know, my feelings are over here and I'm, I'm, I'm this over here. Many times they're like this. But the idea, again, I believe in the scriptures very much that as we mature in Christ, as our minds are saturated with the word of God and the knowledge of God, there's a maturing in our thinking and one of the automatic effects of that is a maturing of our emotions. And that means a maturing of our understanding of our emotions, an understanding of how that works so that we're not confusing the fact that just because I have a feeling about something that may or may not be of God. There's a statement that many people make, and I, I think some make it in innocence. They don't mean harm, but we need to be careful with that. And some people say, well, you know, I did what I did because I just, I really, really had a sense of peace from God. I don't know if you had a peace from God. I don't think you do either. You may have had a sense of peace. It doesn't necessarily come from God in the sense that God is sitting in heaven and watching your life and saying, hmm, yeah, Rick's got a decision to make. I need to give him some peace so he, he knows. I don't, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. Now, I do believe this, that if we're striving to live in obedience to what the Word of God says, we're, we're continuing immersing ourselves in Scripture, knowing what it says, it does have an effect on us, and there will be greater peace in our life. But this idea that somehow we did something because we had peace, we had, we had a, a unique sense of peace can be misleading. Because I have talked to individuals who have said this to me. I asked this one young lady, why are you dating this guy? We had, we had this long conversation preceding that, so, that, so what about the, I didn't just say what I said out of the blue. I said, this guy's a clown. And, he, and he's an unsaved clown. Well, I, I prayed about it. I just had a sense of peace. I said, well, they didn't come from God. 
That's because you're violating what God has said. So the sense of peace came from your own desires or maybe Satan. I said that on purpose. I wanted to jolt her out of her thinking. But there's this idea. So sometimes we, we tend to use certain Christian cliches or phrases to justify something or make something sound better or make it sound like somehow it's, it's okay or spiritual. That's the deceitfulness of our heart. Sometimes maybe out of ignorance, but it's still the deceitfulness of our heart. So I, I'm not going to dogmatically tell people that you and I never experienced the peace of God because I think we do. The Bible talks about it. But this idea that we make a decision based on, I have this sense of peace, that can be dangerous. God wants us to reason through it. Now, you still may not, you, you still may reason through something and not necessarily have a logic as to why you make a decision. You just to say, well, I don't really have reasons to do or not to do it, so I'm going to do it. Okay, it's okay. You're not violating the Bible. You're okay. It's all right. So we don't have to go around trying to either, you know, we're not everyone's trying to sound spiritual, but sometimes we're doing that really more so for ourselves and others. So what I'm trying to take, what we want to do is take out of it this, this ignorant sense of, of mystery or sense that we have to somehow obtain to so we can really be walking in the Spirit of God. It, it's a lot simpler to know what God says. The real difficulty, if you really think about it, is doing what God says. That's where, the, that's where it's hard. You know, I, it, we don't always want to obey God because sometimes the things he says is, I don't want to do that. Or I want to do such and such. So that's why, again, we depend upon God to lead and direct us. But it's not necessarily because I have a sense of peace. So we're commanded by God often to be filled with the Spirit. To, to yield to the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit. It is a level or a quality of being empowered by the Spirit. Being empowered by the Spirit is a strength that God gives us to obey. It is a strength that God gives us to, to want to obey, uh, to be willing to live with whatever the consequences may be for living obedience to the Word. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the believers there had gathered in prayer. And it says this, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and he continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here what we see is there is now there's some evidence of being filled. And this again is where there's some confusion comes in. So speaking in tongues is not evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Right? Because, yield, because yielding to the Spirit here, or being filled with the Spirit, is simply submitting to what God says. Here, we see one of the evidences. They were sharing the word of God with others with boldness. They weren't worried about what men thought about them. There was a courage that was there. They had submitted themselves to God, and they had courage to speak, and they spoke boldly. So one of the effects then of, and one, one individual said this, so one of the effects of this extraordinary, powerful, and unusual experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that there are that we are more ready and free and bold in our witness to Christ. Now that's just one. That's not the only one. That's just one. There are some others that are listed because if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 5, which the context is about being filled with the Spirit, then what happens is you're not only ready and free and more eager, eager to overflow with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and giving thanks to God, but there's some other things that go along with that. Remember this, the Holy Spirit marks you as a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. 
There are no Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is what all believers should seek to experience. And when I say experience, the idea there is not that you have an experience, but that you are yielding to the Spirit of God. You are following what God says in His Word. That's what it's talking about. And you're doing it for the sake of Christ. You want to be free from the power of sin, which we've been delivered by. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, he delivered us from the power of sin. So if I want to, be, if I want to live in that freedom, and if I want to live in, in, with a freedom of the fear of man, then I'm, if I'm yielding to the Spirit, that's going to happen. Because I'm, I'm completely submitted wholeheartedly to that. It's going to give me strength to do what I need to do. So how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? You know you have the Holy Spirit if in fact you've been born again. That's it. If you're a Christian. Again, is speaking in tongues evidence of being of the filling of the Holy Spirit? No. Acts chapter, I'm going to give you another example. Acts 4.8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the people of, uh, uh, and elders. So Peter here preaches. He's not speaking in tongues. He is, it says clearly he is filled with the Spirit, so he's being led by the Spirit. He is empowered or strengthened by the Spirit, and so he preaches. Later on in chapter 4, verse 31 again, we, we already read that, where they were speaking the word of God with boldness. Then over in chapter 5 of Acts, beginning in verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. This is Stephen. He's being killed when this is taking place. He's being stoned to death. And, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here is a man who's full of the Holy Spirit and he sees Jesus just before he dies. That's, that doesn't mean everyone's going to see Jesus just before they die, but he did. Acts 13, verse 9, But Saul, who was, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So Paul's there given some pretty straight boldness, and he speaks directly to this individual and kind of calls him out on what he's doing. And later on in verse 47, For so, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of, the, of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So again, there's talking of them being filled with the Spirit. Again, this is not some, some event that takes place, but it's emphasizing to us that they're being led and directed by the Spirit, that their response to the situation is not just because of who they are personally or their personality. And what is their response? Joy. They're being persecuted and they're experiencing joy. They're experiencing deep happiness. So being filled with the Spirit... There's no speaking in tongues that's evidence of that. It's actually other things. And this joy and this boldness to declare the word of God. There are three occasions in the book of Acts where speaking in tongues is accompanied the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Again, sometimes this is where some of the confusion comes in. People read the book of Acts. They see individuals receive salvation. They receive the Holy Spirit. They go, ah, see, there it is. That's Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. However, what's interesting is of these three occasions... These are the only places in the Bible where speaking in tongues is evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. In other words, the receiving of the Holy Spirit here, the speaking in tongues, was a sign. But it wasn't a sign to those who received the Holy Spirit, it was a sign to others. It was for them. 
Throughout the book of Acts, thousands of people believe in Jesus. Nothing is ever said about any of them speaking in tongues. Nowhere in the New Testament is it taught that speaking in tongues is at least the only evidence a person has received the Holy Spirit. In fact, the New Testament teaches the opposite. We are told that every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit, but not every believer speaks in tongues. How do we know that? Because we go back to our reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which explains spiritual gifts and who decides what gifts you get? The Holy Spirit. Does everyone receive the same gift? No. Is there any person who receives no gift? No. It's a simple conclusion that you draw from the truth that's laid out there for us. So again, in Ephesians 5, he tells us that we must be filled with the Spirit. And then verse 21 adds, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So another evidence of the Spirit is that we, are, we give preference to each other in our relationships as believers. We're not selfishly seeking our own way. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have any convictions. You may have convictions that, that the church, let's say, should go in a certain direction to glorify the Lord. It doesn't mean you don't have any convictions about it. But there's this idea that in our relationships with each, with each other, there's a preference given to each other. Now, this is not tolerance as how the word tolerance is used in our society today, where, you know, we don't say anything negative or against someone who may, let's say, believe something wrong. We're going to speak out against that. But the idea is that we're going to be polite, kind, and gracious. That's really what it's talking about. I mean, there's, there's a desire to do that because we care about the other individuals. We have the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, to submit and yield to the Holy Spirit. And again, there are some other things that, that Ephesians talks about, which is not only that we are submitting to each other, because if you keep reading, there are some other evidences of being filled with the Spirit. You're not going to like this. Sorry. Number one, one of the evidences of being led by the Spirit of God and submitting to God is wives submit to their husbands. Oh boy, now we're in trouble. Of course, there's another one. that's husbands loving their wives. Husbands are absolutely committed to loving their wives. Period. There's, there's a devotion. There's a willingness to sacrifice. There's a willing to give preference to them. To all of those things. Hmm, there's another one. Children being obedient to parents or their guardians. So, you know, the teenager says they're saved. Okay, good. Are they obedient to their parents? Not perfectly. No one is. But generally speaking, are they? Because sometimes parents just say, oh, I know my child. I know they're saved. Really? How do you know? Well, because they went forward. That's okay. I'm glad. <laughs> but you need to pray for my teenager. Why? Well, they're just having a lot of trouble. I can't get them to do anything. I thought you said they were saved. Well, you know how it is when kids turn and become teenagers. No. No, we don't. When we read the Bible, this idea that when you turn 13, magically, something overtakes you, and you now become rebellious and hateful and spiteful, that's not, that's not biblical. Now, we do have a natural tendency to do wrong, don't we? Absolutely. But the Bible also tells us that a believer has been freed from the power of sin. That would include a teenager. So the, well, we all know that none of us obeys God perfectly, so there will be no teenager that obeys their parents perfectly, but that will be, I think, in the general course of things, their general attitude and their general behavior. They will have love, kindness, and reverence for their parents and gratitude. That's evidence of their growth as Christians. Even if in their young minds they can memorize two whole books of the Bible, if they're not showing respect and love and obedience to their parents, 
we have the right to doubt if they really know Christ. See how very practical it is. Just because someone can memorize a lot of Bible verses, which is a good thing, doesn't mean they know God. You can know a lot of theology and not know God. And so we want to make sure that even though we want to emphasize knowledge by itself, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's, it's the totality of the individual. It's, it's our submission to Christ, which is not then just submitting to knowing the word in a sense intellectually, but knowing it in the sense of living it out and living in obedience. And then there's other parts in, when you continue to read Ephesians, whether it's speaking to slaves or we want to use the application for employees, that you submit to your boss or your supervisor. It's evidence that you're being led by the Spirit of God. You know, only humble people will do that. Humility is a result of being filled with the Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, reads this way, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So here what we see is that a Spirit-filled believer is being what we would call being led by the Spirit, and they will have increasing victory over sin. So the idea is, is that as we grow as Christians, we will, in a sense, sin less when you've been a believer for 10 years than when you were a believer for 10 weeks. Now, we want to be careful that we don't start adding a bunch of lists and things to that because that can get us all kind of trouble. But there is that general sense that it's true. And, and one of the reasons why, you know, when we gather together Sunday and one of the reasons why we confess our sin to corporately is there's, it, it serves as a reminder to us that we're all in this battle and we sin against God and sin is always very serious. It, 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 you and I are not strong enough to mitigate the consequences of sin. We're, we're not. What it will do to us and what it will do to others. And, and, we, and then we must confront it and we must confess it and we must deal with it. And here he tells us that this is one of the attitudes and one of the results of those who are being led by the Spirit. Back to one of the words we said where people have this confusion. That is... Um, that, that people will say, well, one of the ways that you can tell that you've been baptized by the Spirit of God is by speaking in tongues. That's untrue. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, notice the way that Paul says this. Verse 13 in particular is what I want you to look at. It says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So Paul is writing to believers, as we know. We've already covered this. And he's going to explain some truths to them because there's some misunderstandings about the working of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Paul here in verse 13 tells them that everyone was, everyone was you were all. It is, bat, it is past tense. There's no qualifiers here. He didn't say, well, most of you were. Or for those of you who are faithful, or for those of you who have certain gifts. No, he just says, you were all baptized into one body. And then to make sure they understood that, he wants them to know that it doesn't matter if that person was Jewish or Greek. It doesn't matter if you have a Jewish religious background or a pagan background, if you were a slave or if you were a free man. We're all made to drink together of what? One spirit. And so we all have that in common. That we talk about our relationship. We are the family of God. Why? Well, because we all are possessed by the same spirit, the spirit of God himself. 
In the same way that we look at a family, we say a family's related to each other because they all have the same blood, so to speak. But then we also know that there are those who are adopted into a family and they are, they are a part of that family in every way. And the Bible uses that adoption language talking about us being a part of the family of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters. And just so you know, many of our adoption laws in our country are based on, or the idea comes from, both Jewish and Roman uh, adoption laws. And so, you know, I, many of you know I have, my, I have two sisters. The youngest one is um, adopted. And because of the strength of the laws, I can be cut out of my dad's will. My sister can't. When we adopted her, we were in Virginia for a short while. So if my dad tried to exclude her for any reason out of whatever is left when he dies, the state of Virginia will override that will and say, that's not going to be done. This will be done. That's the strength of that. And so the idea is that there's this, this powerful legal entity that's behind the enforcement. And so, of course, what's behind our adoption uh, in the family of God is God himself. And so there's nothing high. That's the highest court that there is. So again, the signs of a spirit-filled Christian are that he or she is obedient, happy. If you haven't read Martin Lloyd-Jones, you should read him. He talks a lot about that, that it is the evidence of being a, uh, uh, a spirit-filled believer is that you are happy. It doesn't mean that you're never sad, but you cannot be Mr. and Mrs. Sourpuss. You, you cannot be Mr. and Mrs. Grumpy Pants, all right? Uh, the bottom line is that we are happy people. Now, you may not be smiling all the time, but you are happy. That's just, that's just, we know God. We're also thankful. We are singing songs. It doesn't say you're singing in tune, but you're singing songs. And we increasingly do not sin. And then, of course, the fruit of the Holy Spirit should be, at least begin to become more and more obvious in our lives as believers. Another misleading aspect of speaking in tongues, again, which we've dealt with before, is the idea that an individual will say that they're edifying themselves. So I'm just going to just start to do this, and then we'll finish this next week. Where we're, just, we're just going to begin to work our way now without going off on any tangents, kind of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> beginning in verse 4 of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. So look at that. And again, it says, The one who speaks in a tongue, and this, I believe, would be in a babble. This is not in a, a spiritually gifted uh, human language that you've not studied. This is a babble. But the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Again, remember, there are many individuals who say, that's what I'm doing when I speak in tongues. I'm building up myself. That's what the Bible says. The problem is there's a comma after the word himself, and it's followed by the word but. So it says, in contrast. So in contrast, the one who prophesies builds up the church. So if you go back to chapter 12, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? Always to build up others. There's never even a hint that a spiritual gift is given to you to build up yourself. God has created us so that we will be dependent upon each other. Period. I am dependent upon others to teach me. I don't just teach myself. I do have certain preachers that I really enjoy listening to, that I want to learn from. God has given them to the church for our edification, and I'm one of those being edified by that. So this idea here then that you build up yourself is not a positive thing. It's a negative thing because it goes against what God has designed spiritual gifts for. So the individual then who proclaims that he's just simply following what the Bible says is misusing the Bible, 
Now they may misunderstand it, they may have been taught wrong, but they're still misusing it. We need to complete the sentence. And usually complete the paragraph as well. And then just to make sure that no one gets a bad attitude about all these things, Paul says in verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. So he's not, he's not you know, trying to be some cosmic killjoy. He says, I don't want anyone else to experience this, only me. He says, I want you all to do this. He says, but even more to prophesy. Because he sees that as being much more beneficial. He is here making a clear distinction that speaking in tongues is lesser than the gift of prophecy. And he says so, just in case you were unclear about that. The one who prophesies is greater. Now, it doesn't mean that they're greater and that you should make them suddenly the leader, all right? But is greater, is of greater value, you could say it that way, than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. Why does he throw that in there? Because he goes right back to what chapter 12 has been talking about, so that the church may be built up. See, it constantly comes back to the importance of the church and building up the church. It's a we thing with all of this. It's always a we thing. And we, must all, and we must approach it that way ourselves. So what we will do next week is we will pick it up in verse 6. And we will begin to, in a sense, mow through the rest of the chapter. And, and point out the way that Paul says things. And then draw from the truth that he's emphasizing. And why that's important. So that we then can be clear. Because remember that because of ignorance of chapter 14. Many believers are being led astray. Sometimes thinking that God has rejected them or that God does not hear their prayers, or that um, they're not experiencing all that God has for them. And then they begin to go down different paths, chasing after this teacher or that teacher, or chasing after this experience or that experience, and it, leads, or it can often lead to spiritual disaster. I'm not saying that it always does, but it can. It can lead to spiritual stagnation, where the individual fails to continue to grow. What I mean by that is it's not that they fail to understand more, the Bible says, because they, they may be learning more about the Bible, but it leads to spiritual stagnation in the sense that you stop maturing as a believer. You're not growing in your love and adoration for the Lord. You're not growing in your love and desire to serve each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means. You, you are going to struggle much longer with your anger because you're unable to mature. You're, you're going to struggle much longer uh, in, in either your impatience or in a list of other things, myriad of other things that we can say are the result of a lack of really maturing in Christ. And God really wants us to change in those areas because it's good and beneficial for us. How many people do you know who really struggle with anger or impatience are just joyful, happy people? They're, they're not. They may have moments... I'd rather have more of those moments all strung together. And that's what God desires for us. That is the abundant life that he has, which can be experienced now and will definitely be experienced when we're with the Lord for all of eternity. Because there'll be so much joy to be joyful about. It, you know, you, it, as we used to say in Hawaii, you know, you, the smile on your face is so big it's going to break your face. This is going to be so great. And so we, we should want that for each other. And, and not left in ignorance, which will often mean that we can be left in spiritual misery. And there are people who do really want to know God well. And they're in places where they're not really taught what the scripture says. And so they're in kind of like a bondage. And they're just trying to get through each week, uh, uh, each week of their life. 
not experiencing really the great joy and sense of contentment that sometimes we experience ourselves. It's, it's just simply because not we're better than they are. It's we just we know more what the Word of God says because we're trying to be taught correctly and we're reading it and we're trying to absorb it and live by it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to always be better students of your word. But Father, with that, we ask that as we come to better understand your word, we pray, Lord, that you would just never allow us, Father, to come across as arrogant or better than others. But always, Father, to be grateful for what we know, to be grateful, Lord, perhaps for what we've been saved from, to be grateful for what we were maybe saved out of. Now, Father, as we experience the great joy and sense of satisfaction and contentment that you have for us, may we, Father, just be grateful to you in every way. And may we live out that gratefulness and may it be seen in us that we are a grateful, happy, submissive people to God. That we are not drones, that, we, that it is not that our minds don't function. It's none of those things. But Lord, that we are very much aware of all of life and we are able to embrace life and enjoy life to the fullest because we know you and because you know us and because we know the future that we have because of all that Christ has done. Father, we thank you so much that your spirit does reside in us. We thank you, Lord, for the confidence we can have that you will never leave us alone, that you will never abandon us, and that you will never leave us to ourselves. Thank you. We do ask these things. In the name of Christ. Amen.